Hi, I'm Andrew and this is the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Tim Cadman and we're going to be talking all about the blue economy and also about the governance of geoengineering. Welcome to the show. Hello Andrew, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Just had a good swim. Um, so if you could uh, tell us uh, exactly what uh, the um, blue carbon economy is all about, um, that would be great. But before that, if you could just introduce yourself by giving us a bit about your university, your position, research institute, what you do and what your program's all about. Sure. Uh, well, my name's Tim Cadman. I'm a research fellow with the Institute for Ethics, Governance and Law at Griffith University um, in Queensland, uh, in Australia. Uh, so where, where, in, where in Australia is that? Because everything on, on, in Australia is around the coast, isn't it? So Yeah, that's where right. Are you so um, I, I'm actually based largely at home because I'm a, a research fellow, so I don't uh, have to teach, which is uh, quite a privilege, really. I'm, I'm in a lovely little town called Bellingen on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, but my um, office, as it were, is in a um, suburb of Brisbane called Nathan. And um, yeah, so that's I'm, sort of like halfway up the um, uh, the east coast, right? Uh, yeah, for argument's sake, pretty much. And then okay. my office is about uh, six hours south. My real office here in Bellingen is about six hours south. Uh, of Brisbane as as the car drives or these days as the car doesn't drive. Fair enough. We had um, uh, one of your compatriots on the show recently talking about olivine erosion um, in that location, uh, a volcanic caldera that's eroding uh, slowly and monitoring carbon. So that's uh, another episode for the listeners to check out if they are interested in all things Brisbane related. Um, so the, the research institute you're at, tell me a little bit about that. So is, is it a teaching university or a research institute or what? So, well, well Griffith is kind of um, nipping at the heels of the, um, of the so-called, um, you know, G8 uh, universities. We um, have a lot what, of teaching. What are they? What are the G8? Well, it's like uh, Australian National University, uh, Melbourne University, Sydney University. So, the so kind it's the equivalent of, of Russell Group, but the, the Australian equivalent, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I can never remember if it's the G8 or the G10. Um, but, you know, we're a... Um, it's a, Griffith is a good university. It's the, it's the best place I've worked um, as, as a research academic and a teacher uh, in Australia. I, I would I'd recommend um, anybody who um, survives this current uh, pandemic to think about doing a course here. But the Institute for Ethics, Governance and Law is, um, as the name implies, um, a research institute that, that looks at the intersection, if you like, between ethics, uh, governance uh, and law. I, I'm a governance guy. I'm not really much of a lawyer and I'm more um, of a political scientist than a, a, a jurisprudential uh, kind of person. Uh, but we sit within the Law Futures Centre uh, and so we are more uh, forward-looking, if you like, in terms of uh, looking at issues around institutional integrity, uh, good governance, and um, particularly my area of interest is uh, the governance 
uh, of uh, sustainable development. So how sustainable development is, is coordinated uh, or, or managed, uh, and particularly with an interest in, in climate change. But I have a background also in natural resource management, particularly uh, forests uh, and forestry. So I'm kind of um, really mostly interested in um, what's going on uh, environmentally globally and that kind of social economic environmental uh, nexus that we call sustainable development. So how does um, how does the funding work for your project? Is it just part of the general mission of the institution or have you got specific funding from somebody to work on your uh, blue carbon project at the moment? Okay well uh, this particular project is called the governance of sustainable development evaluating the quality and legitimacy of the blue economy and it's just me it's purely me um, and that's the wonderful thing um, about being a research-only academic is that you can pursue um, your own research interests with no funding ties uh, and, and no, uh, no constraints beyond, obviously, the ethical provisions in, uh, required for, for the conduct of research. I'm doing it with another um, researcher. And essentially, I'm doing this off my own bat because um, Griffith University is part of... Um, an emerging cooperative research centre in Australia, the, the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Centre. Um, and we really don't have much baseline uh, information here in Australia as to uh, what uh, perspectives around um, the sustainable management of our oceans really is, particularly in this region, um, and how we understand the concept of what's sort of nicknamed, if you like, the blue economy. Uh, in other words, the, the goods and services that get generated from our, uh, from our marine um, and coastal uh, environment. So essentially what I'm doing is a kind of 101 um, on where uh, the world's academics, um, economic interests, governments uh, and developed and developing countries are at uh, when it comes to the blue economy generally, um, understood as the sustainable development of the oceans. And then I'm looking at a range of um, initiatives that sit within that kind of broad rubric. So I'm looking at the Sustainable Blue Economy Finance Initiative hosted by the United Nations Environment Programme. I'm looking specifically also at the Blue Carbon Initiative of Conservation International, uh, which works on uh, conservation science policy and management of blue carbon ecosystems. But I've also picked up a couple of um, other initiatives. So I'm also looking at the Marine Stewardship Council, which um, you may or may not be aware of. It's like a, uh, an eco-labelling programme for... Um, yeah, for fish, isn't it? So you, buy, fish. you buy your fish from the garage and, and, and the little tins of fish have MSC label on it so that you kind of hope that they've been sustainably farmed, right? Yeah, uh, or sustainably sourced. There is also an aquaculture uh, stewardship council. Uh, and of course, aquaculture is also part um, of the, uh, the so-called blue economy. Um, so, so can we draw some, can we draw some boundaries here? So 
there's the freshwater ecosystems, rivers, lakes, things like that. Does, that. does that count as a blue economy or is it only marine? Well, um, as a political scientist, Andrew, I'm always interested in what we love to call uh, tensions, silences and gaps. And um, that's a bit of a good question, because um, are we still the blue economy when we're, um, you know, 10 miles up the Severn estuary because it's somewhat brackish? Um, are we talking about mangroves uh, or do we mean, you know, pure uh, freshwater um, and, and, and where do we draw the line? I think generally uh, it's fair to say that when we talk about the blue economy, we generally mean the world's oceans. Um, but that is an extremely good question. And uh, I'm not my, sure my at this stage that, that we know. My understanding is that there are really significant gaps in terms of preservation generally, but also carbon management in freshwater ecosystems. So we've lost major um, uh, river species like the, uh, is it the Baji, the, the Chinese river dolphin? Um, and the Chinese paddlefish, I think they've both been lost from either the Yellow or the Yangtze River, I always get them mixed up. Um, and um, uh, also a lot of the freshwater, uh, a, a lot of the carbon in the world is in um, uh, wetlands and connected ecosystems in freshwater environments. So peat bogs are, are often, you know, uh, semi-aquatic environments there in the very wet lands, um, you know, hence, you know, being wetlands, right? Um, so it's interesting to see where the, the boundaries of all this lie. My understanding is that there, there isn't as much organised protection on a global level of freshwater ecosystems. But turning now to the, um, you know, the, the more conventional boundaries of the, the work that you're doing, um, you're, you discuss um, the blue carbon uh, economy. Um, so, or the, or the blue economy generally. To, to what extent um, is uh, carbon management, um, be that in uh, sediments or in biomass, uh, to what extent is that really focused on and thought about, or is this, you know, a truly emergent field that's really not got enough attention as yet? Uh, a bit of both. There was uh, some, if you like, fairly Wild West uh, carbon-related uh, climate management research um, that occurred uh, around uh, ocean fertilisation, uh, as it was called, in the 1990s. Um, Plankton and Climos and people like that, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, the so-called and more recently, Russ George's malarkey, um, the Hyder Salmon Corporation. Yeah, exactly. And and interestingly, we've just had a uh, a marine cloud brightening experiment uh, undertaken here um, in Australia. I'm certainly on... going to get onto that, but let's yeah. let's just um, focus on the carbon side of things for now. Yeah. So, the, 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 on, the, on of... the Great Barrier Reef. So. Um, but what's interesting now, I think, is that people are beginning to, to look at the potential of um, the ocean as um, a, a potential carbon uh, sink for um, climate change management. And this is where we start looking at um, can we, what, what can we do in terms of using the ocean for, for, for capturing carbon? And, and so in a to, sense, this is an emerging area. Yeah, so just to clarify, and I think it's important that, you know, you want to cover this off for readers, the Planktos and Klimos methodologies have been, you know, uh, to put it mildly sidelined or to put it more strongly, completely discredited um, as a result of later research that basically shows that there's no way that the global um, marine ecosystem could tolerate the kind of 
carbon fluxes, which would be um, attempted as a, as a way of sequestering a meaningful amount of carbon by um, uh, fertilizing the oceans, because the, uh, the fluxes of carbon to the benthic layers, the seabed, would be um, enough to completely transform the marine ecosystem. It would be, it's not just a local effect, it's not just a minor change to food webs. So you're, you're talking about a complete transformation of the ocean to, you know, having ocean bed anoxia and, you know, c completely sort of catastrophic changes to marine ecosystem. So that that's basically in the bin, really. It's as far as a, a meaningful carbon sequestration technique is, is discussed. That's, that's not seen as being a, an active area of research. But what is much more um, uh, interesting in the current climate is things like mangroves that you mentioned, and then there's uh, kelp farming for biomass uh, and uh, resulting energy or animal feed and things like that. So I wonder if you could touch on the the, the, the more um, uh, the, the well the less radical, um, uh, more prosaic forms of uh, marine carbon storage and cultivation, and, and just give us a bit of a whistle stop tour of who's working on what, how it's regulated, that kind of thing. Yes, but I mean, obviously, I'd have to um, do a rejoinder to to your observations around ocean fertilisation. Uh, first. And, and I think, in a sense, this is possibly one of the reasons why it's taken a, a while for the blue economy to get uh, taken seriously uh, to a certain extent, and why there is concern, if you like, about um, undertaking um, experimentation around um, carbon sequestration uh, in our oceans, because we, we had a bad scene um, first time round, which has... I think fortunately made science uh, a little bit cautious. Uh, but nevertheless, there are some um, interesting um, experiments going on. People are, uh, are obviously looking at uh, conventional uh, energy generation um, for, um, you know, using uh, wave power. Um, they're looking at um, generating electricity offshore for the processing of, of, of hydrogen, uh, for the hydrogen economy. Um, particularly, there's this discussion now about uh, deep, what are called deep ocean platforms. So the idea that we would move our, um, our aquaculture and our mariculture uh, activities further offshore. Um, some people say, uh, so... <laughs> they can be out of sight, out of mind, uh, but more to um, also use that space uh, out there in the oceans for... But my understanding is that the, um, uh, the high seas are, are much less biodiverse and a much less sensitive environment than the coastal ecosystems. Is that correct? Uh, well, to a certain extent, and, and it, it depends where you are in the um, in the deep ocean. But um, yes, I, I, I would say so. Um, but to go back to your whistle stop tour, obviously, yes, there are some really important uh, coastal and marine ecosystems um, that if better managed, we would have um, a, a much better um, and much uh, more reduced carbon uh, footprint uh, as a species. And uh, as you indicate, Andrew, all this stuff is interconnected. So what happens in our wetlands uh, and the drying of our, of our wetlands, uh, our inland wetlands in, in countries such as Indonesia in particular, 
um, have a massive um, carbon footprint in terms of uh, the release uh, of CO2. This has been a, a huge problem in, in Indonesia with the, with the clearing. So draining of, peat bogs for agriculture, which then catch fire, right? Well, which don't just catch fire, that the actual, the, the actual drying itself releases enormous amounts of carbon. Um, so yeah, yeah, but the, the peat bogs themselves, when they've dried out, can actually catch fire. You have underground fires in the peat bogs. Uh, um, in, in they indeed, they do. In, indeed they do and we've as part of our recent um bushfires uh here in australia um just uh, a couple of hundred kilometers down the road from me um we had a peat bog ecosystem that burnt for for four months um and with the world's temperatures uh increasing this is um more and more likely to happen so we really do need to see the relationship between um, our uh, inland freshwater ecosystems and our downstream uh, ecosystems, particularly our mangroves and our sea grasses, um, many uh, areas of which have been uh, cleared for you know for, for prawn farming um, and so forth. So if by, we are by, by funding from development agencies, apparently, which is not an example of uh, particularly sustainable development. Exactly. Exactly, Andrew. And I mean, that's one of my areas of research is looking at the governance quality of some of these international programs. The, the program that I specialised in researching is a, is a UN uh, framework uh, a convention on climate change initiative called uh, REDD, or Reducing Emissions from Deforestation uh, and, and Forest Degradation. And yes, paying people to do development, um, but uh, not doing it sustainably, um, can be um, highly problematic when it comes to, to international aid. So we need to make sure that we get the governance of those kinds of programs right, and particularly have the local stakeholders on the ground involved in, in, in developing and, and designing those schemes, rather than, uh, if you like, um, landing them uh, from outer space onto some community. A bit like, um, to use a somewhat gross analogy, giving sugar to a diabetic. Um, and when it comes to using the ocean and storing carbon in the ocean and, and developing the ocean, we could even stretch that analogy uh, a little bit further still and just think about the implications of what we're doing uh, with activities such as um, cooling the upper surfaces of the ocean by uh, deep ocean upwelling or uh, storing carbon in biomass uh, such as kelp. I or... I have I have many I have many questions. So I, I, I'm I, I you are good at giving me a stream of consciousness, but I want to uh, just row back on a few little bits that you said because I want to try and get under the hood of them. So, just briefly, the Red Initiative does that um, does that only deal with onshore carbon, or does that deal at all with things like mangrove and um, uh, and um, what are they called? It's they're not plants if they grow in the sea. Things like kelp forests. There's a special word for them. Uh, uh, kelp forests ma and ma macroalgae. That's it. Yeah. So um, ma um, macroalgae. Uh, it's lovely actually because they, as you say, they do call them kelp forests. But REDD uh, does not does not look at that. But what about what mangroves? Because mangroves are kind of like forests, aren't they? They've got trees and all sorts, right? So. Absolutely right. And so when we when we've been working with stakeholders in Papua New Guinea. Um, for example, uh, 
one of the concerns that the locals have there and, and also in, in Indonesia is that the clearing of forests inland um, and the fertilization of that, uh, those cleared areas that are then converted to, to palm oil, um, those nutrients uh, wash down, um, wash into the rivers, uh, they hit the mangroves and mangroves are, um, you know, they've evolved to, to cope with specific um, environments and, and quite often nutrient poor uh, environments. So if you dump a load of nutrients on mangroves, they, they don't like it very much. So this is- You get eutrophication, right? You, indeed. And so this is, this so again- just, just for people who are unfamiliar with this, what, to just describe what eutrophication is. So if you, well, um, I don't know if folks have like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to play down in the playing fields in, uh, in, my, in my village. I'm a Brit by birth. And I used to always be fascinated by the little creek down at the bottom behind the scout hall because it was always bright orange. Uh, and I didn't understand why it was bright orange. Um, but if you dump a whole load of fertilizer into water, essentially you get this massive burst of growth of all the uh, microorganisms and the algae and the plants. Uh, and then what that actually does is create um, a situation where uh, the biological um, oxygen demand, as it's called, is just exceeds the capacity of the, um, of the environment to cope. And you basically uh, outgrow uh, your so you oxygen. Get a layer of, you get a layer of dead organisms on the bottom of the stream right so that the the water is no longer aerated because there's so much biological productivity you get um uh the equivalent of marine snow but the freshwater equivalent thereof and it lies in a dead layer on the bottom which has no oxygen in it and then you get essentially poisoning of the environment right that's how it works right yeah i mean uh again to use a silly analogy um but a good example it's kind of a little bit the danger that we face if we fill the atmosphere with carbon dioxide uh, from our own activities we have to always keep um, our earth systems uh, in balance whether it's the relationship between the atmosphere uh, and the biosphere you know like uh, life on earth um, and when we are looking at um, climate change management in a world in which humans have uh, released more carbon uh, than the earth system can really cope with, the interventions that we make to try and fix the problem uh, have to not be uh, or become part of the problem. Okay, so um, just want to turn uh, to another question which you touched on uh, but uh, didn't give me too much detail. So you were talking about growing uh, uh, biomass in deep ocean environments. So are you talking on, about platforms or bags or are these organisms that can grow in, in very deep water? You know, talk to me about what that culture looks like because you, you teased me with that but you didn't give me enough information to um, fully get to grips with it. Okay well I mean this is an emerging this is an emerging space but essentially um, we're looking at um, as you say macro algae farming so one of the ideas with that is that you... Um, flappy you, seaweed of various kinds there are. <laughs> Flat, flappy, flappy seaweed of various kinds um, that are, for example, off the coast of Tasmania, uh, incredibly beautiful, um, but are dying. Uh, Tassie has lost um, almost all its kelp forests 
um, as a consequence of um, human activity and um, is that what is that trawling or what? No, it's it's just um, global warming, Andrew. It's the change in the temperature of the currents around the island and um, the impact that that's having um, on um, the marine ecosystem. And so now we're looking at um, what we can do, uh, or some scientists are looking at what they can do. Can they grow or develop um, kelp? Uh, that is more uh, tolerant of um, changes in, in temperature. Uh, is again, that to farm it for productive use or just farm it for carbon storage and biodiversity? Uh, all I mean, three. About harvesting it. All I said people three. might harvest it and use it for cattle and stuff. Yeah, all, all three. So one is, um, one is a restoration initiative. So can we restore these forests as we uh, are trying to do uh, on land? with um, what's now being called pro-forestation. Um, can we uh, use these um, plants for the uh, uh, storage of carbon? Um, and yes, can we then process these, um, uh, this seaweed into um, products that we can then feed uh, to cattle? Uh, for example, uh, so can we reduce the the footprint, the carbon footprint of our of our uh, meat production, or can we process these things into actual foodstuffs uh, for human consumption? This is. Kind I have of... a bag of kelp in my kitchen, which I've been very slowly eating because I don't like it very much. Um, but uh, yeah, you can definitely eat it. You can, or you can put it. So, for example, I've got. I went to the beach the other day um, and picked up some some seaweed that had uh, washed up in a storm, and I put it on my parsley, and it's uh, it's going um, uh, great guns uh, at the moment. Uh, so uh, the potential is enormous, but then, as you know, um, Andrew, with with every enormous potential comes potential risk uh, and potential enormous risk. Uh, so these are all being uh, looked at. Okay. So just to return to that point about the the farming, uh, are, are you talking about high seas farming where you, you've got some way of anchoring uh, kelp or other macroalgae to grow on the surface or near surface of very deep oceans? Are you? Are you? Because I've heard of something like that in the North Sea, where they, they're creating floating um, seaweed farms. Is, is that something that you were referring to earlier or is it much more in the kind of littoral, littoral zone near the, near the coastline and on the continental shelf? Uh, look, at the moment, it's largely littoral, but that's being it, that's basically being investigated um, okay. as, as so, we speak. So, for example, there's a small scale project um, in um, off the off the coast of Tasmania that's that's looking at that uh, at the moment. And it, it's um, it's calls itself um, marine permaculture. Yeah. So um, if, I, if we were to divide up all of the biological carbon storage in the oceans, um, including the sediments, where, where is it all? I mean, is it like, you know, 10% fish and 30% mangroves or, you know, how is it, how is it apportioned very crudely? Um, you mean car carbon in the, carbon in the ocean? In, yeah. In the, in the, in the ocean and the, and the, shoreline environments i mean where, where is all the carbon because obviously if you're if you're trying to store carbon and you know only you know half a percent of the biomass is whales then 
doubling the number of whales is not really going to get you very far because you're only going to store, you know, another half a percent, right? Whereas if, if it's like 50% in mangroves and you can double the number of mangroves that you've got, then, you know, you're going to, you know, add another 50% on top to the total, right? So if we, I'm just trying to get an idea of where the really big pools of carbon are in the ocean and in the, you know, the, the near ocean environment, estuaries and uh, mangroves and uh, reefs and stuff like that. Where, where is all the carbon in there? Well, look, I mean, I think the issue, the real issue is, is that the amount of, um, um, if you like, uh, living carbon that's uh, swimming around in the ocean or um, is existing as, as um, macroalgae um, or seaweed is, is really very small compared to the regulating function that our oceans play. So, um, essentially so you're talking about like the earth system role right i'm talking yeah that's right i'm talking about the earth system role so while we can uh load um carbon into that um into that system through um you know uh experiments and human activities we also have to remember that the ocean plays a massive role in um both um taking up carbon uh from the atmosphere uh, and receiving carbon. So um, as mineral rocks break down on land, um, we, get the, we get the process of, um, you know, the accretion of carbon uh, that then flows through the rivers and, and, and feeds into ocean systems there. The ocean is also um, absorbing carbon uh, from the atmosphere. So it's a, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge um, carbon sink, if you like. Yeah, I mean, the, the ocean, the oceans, the inorganic carbon cycle is overwhelmingly dominant, but um, the, the, that's a kind of separate matter, which I'd like to touch on in a bit. Um, in terms of the, um, most of what's seen as blue carbon is typically things like kelp forest, mangroves, stuff like that. And I just wondered if you could give um, listeners some idea of scale and scope. I mean, if, uh, you know, are we, are, I know peat bogs, for example, are um, cover about three percent of the. I think it's the lands. I was I keep quoting this, but I, I never, I'm never certain of the statistic. I think it's three percent of the land surface of the ocean, and they've got more uh, land surface of the uh, of the earth, and they've got more carbon than the atmosphere. So, in terms of looking at mangroves, I mean, are mangroves a globally significant carbon pool, or are they quite a small carbon pool? And you know, similarly for seaweed, or or is ocean biomass really quite a small matter in terms of things you can manipulate to get carbon out of the air? Yes, <laughs> uh, it, you know, in a, in a nutshell, that the, the significance of mangroves and seagrasses are not their potential to store carbon. Um, their significance is their ecosystem service. And I think one of the problems that we've... Well, that's really interesting because blue, the blue carbon um, storage has been, you know, quite sort of, you know, hyped or discussed quite a bit, depending on whether you think it's hype or not. But, you know, people have certainly talked quite a bit about the capacity of the nearshore environment to, to store carbon in biomass and in sediments um, secured by biomass, right? So it's not just the living material, it's the dead material that's held together by the living material, right? So, um, you know, people have look, looked at that in some depth and they've got, you know, there are quite a few programs that look at doing that kind of story. So are you saying that they're, you know, that's not really where it's at when it comes to carbon storage in the ocean. You don't think that there's much potential there? Uh, look, there is potential. Um, 
Of course, there's potential and there is potentially enormous potential. But the I would want to step back from that question and say, well, hang on a minute. Um, what are we doing in the oceans that we uh, can't do by just simply um, adopting, you know, what are referred to as deep decarbonisation pathways? Why can't we just stop burning fossil fuels? Why can't we just stop having massive land use change and releasing carbon uh, from terrestrial activities? Uh, why can't we actually take action to reduce uh, our carbon emissions and the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere? Well, I mean, those, those are all perfectly valid questions, but I mean, we, we try and focus, you know, I think most people that are listening to, to our podcast are, are going to be somewhat well-versed in, in those discussions and also reasonably convinced of the politics behind carbon reduction. So what, what we really want to try and focus on is the carbon storage, the CDR element of the, um, uh, of the equation. And I think what you're saying there is that mangroves, although ecologically important and kelp forests, although ecologically important, aren't necessarily a major part of the picture in terms of, of, of global carbon storage. That segues nicely into what is likely, almost certainly, um, a much larger um, opportunity, and that's the dissolved um, inorganic carbon um, in the oceans. And as you rightly point out, that comes in the form of um, uh, reacted um, bicarbonate ions from weathering and, and dissolved carbon dioxide in the form of carbonic acid from uh, directly from the air. Um, could you touch on um, the, the, the techniques that are uh, about uh, increasing that storage pool be that ocean alkalization or ocean electrochemistry um, and, and some of those approaches and what, and what the governance issues and what the opportunities are for those. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is a little bit where we, we kind of, um, with respect, stray into this kind of um, weird science, if you like, um, where we talk about this concept called enhanced uh, weathering. Um, so, Essentially, if we stop um, industrial production of carbon dioxide now and just sit here and do nothing more and just calm down about global warming, within about 100,000 years, the Earth cycles will come back into um, you know, dynamic equilibrium and the Earth system will, will have settled down and um, you know, global warming, as it were, uh, will have been uh, sorted exactly what temperatures we'll have, et cetera, et cetera, we, we, we're not entirely sure. But the Earth is a system and it is capable of self-regulation. Um, and weathering, uh, as you've explained, is, is one way that carbon gets processed uh, within the system. So, what... so you've got companies like, you know, just to give, give listeners an, an example, so Project Vesta, they take olivine sand, um, they place it on beaches and they rely on wave action to mechanically... Uh, uh, break down the sand grains and then there's chemical weathering associated where the olivine uh, directly react, reacts with the carbon dioxide uh, and I think it ends up as dissolved bicarbonate in the, um, uh, in the ocean environment and that's, that's one of the ways that carbon is stored but there, there are others as well so you know you've got electrochemistry approaches where people might use um, electrochemistry to remove chlorine um, and then react that chlorine with alkaline rocks and return the alkaline sodium back to the to the um, to the ocean to change the um, alkalinity. Or they might add quicklime to the ocean, or ultimately slate lime because um, calcium oxide or calcium hydroxide. Um, you know, all various ways to increase the pH 
and bind the carbon in the marine environment. So I just wonder if you could touch on some of the governance issues and the capacities of those collectively. You know, you might want to include that as enhanced weathering, or you might want to view it as, you know, ocean alkalinity enhancement as its own thing. I mean, they are still mineral carbon approaches, right? Yeah, so um, I, I guess the issue is, is um, you know, the first question is, is to what extent do we understand um, these cycles on uh, a planetary uh, geological level? Um, what are the um, short, medium and long-term uh, impacts and implications of um, pulverizing rocks, if you like, and, and um, uh, burying them in the coast or, or, or dumping them in the oceans or um, putting them on land? Uh, what are the human health impacts associated with some of these technologies, such as having all this fine-grained material around? Um, what are the ecological impacts of um, extracting that uh, those minerals and and transporting them, um, you know, on a massive scale? Well, they're, they're, these are all interesting questions, but are we near getting any answers on them? And I, mean, I know Project Vesta have got an active uh, project in a Caribbean cove somewhere, and I think that there's concern about the uh, metal ions that are being liberated by the weathering process. So whether you get things like cadmium and stuff like that that are, uh, that are concentrated in the um, littoral environments as a result of the um uh the weathering of the source rocks right so um have you got a view on whether any of these technologies be that you know ocean alkalinity addition electrochemistry enhanced weathering it, can you give me a shoot from the hip view as to which ones are going to turn out to be a good idea and which ones are going to turn out to be daft plans that get rapidly forgotten um what a question, Andrew. I mean, I guess you won't like it, but I'll be going back to this question of should we be deploying these technologies when we still have the options to not combat climate change through such extreme measures? Uh, and whether, we, whether they work and whether they are safe or not, um, they, are, uh, they are extreme. They are... Um, Planetary, yeah, planetary-level interventions. So I'm not um, going to give you that get out of jail free card because you know, I, I, as I say, I think that there's a widespread understanding, certainly amongst the people that are listening to the podcast, um, that these changes are indeed necessary, and the global economy does have to decarbonise. And the, the question is about speed and the practicality of uh, of that. It's not so much that we don't know that we can decarbonise. I mean, now you're getting to not necessarily a majority of major economies, but certainly a large slew of major economies that are committed to total decarbonation, decarbonisation. Well, that's going to happen over the next you know, approximately 40 years, depending on how aggressive the timetables are. So I think there's a, there's, there's a growing acceptance that decarbonisation is coming. The question is, you know, how do we deal with um, uh, the emissions that occur while we're getting there and, and also the historic emissions? So what I want to concentrate on, because I think that's what's most of interest to people who are listening to this podcast is to try and understand what you think of as being the you know the front running techniques what which ones you think have particular either ecosystem or governance uh, concerns that make them uh, more problematic um, and which ones might um, uh, operate in a kind of gray area where we're unsure as to their um, benefits and disadvantages and we need to give a more acute uh, research focus where should researchers and mostly the people that listen to this podcast are active researchers where should they be devoting their time what questions should they be devoting the, their 
energies to answering in order to sort the wheat from the chaff out in terms of these uh, marine techniques? Well, I mean, in the sense, Andrew, you've just given yourself a, uh, a get out of jail card there because you're not, you're not looking at the fundamental question um, that is really underscoring which one of these technologies is feasible and or desirable. And that is, are we going to, or can we take action to reduce the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere so that we stay at 1.5 degrees global warming? Or have we overshot already? And in that case, are we going to hit two degrees? And at what point do we consider such technologies viable? A decision by a global economy like China to go zero emissions, not by 2050, but by 2060, has a 0.2 degrees centigrade warming implication for the planet just by saying, oh, well, we're going to do this wonderful policy intervention. Uh, we're going to save the world, but we're going to do it 10 years later than we, than we um, signed up to in the Paris Agreement. Uh, but don't worry, we're going to do it anyway. Well, that's a billion people still producing certain levels of carbon dioxide for another 10 years. And because of the inertia in the planet's systems, that, that has long-term uh, implications. So in a sense, we're kind of looking at one sort of uh, line on a graph, uh, which is temperature warming, and the other line on the graph uh, is uh, intervention uh, by deep decarbonisation. And you cannot, um, I can't answer your question uh, without saying, well, what are we going to do uh, about warming temperatures and when are we going to accept that we failed and when are we going to as a consequence look at these technologies and I mean if you want to if you want me to answer that question uh, the later we leave dealing with the carbon we have in the atmosphere now and industrial activity now the more we will have to um, contemplate technologies like uh, stratospheric aerosol inception, uh, you know, injection, um, um, umbrellas in space, um, you know, marine cloud. <laughs> lightning, in space. That's um, a new one on me. You, you know, <laughs> but, um, uh, well, I think you, you've, you've, um, my attempts to draw you on this point um, to uh, sort these technologies into some kind of rank order of preference and highlight the, the gaps have failed somewhat. So let's move on to. Uh, this little segue that you've thrown me there about the um, the optical techniques. So you, you mentioned stratospheric aerosols there, and you've mentioned marine cloud brightening um, and you know other related techniques by association, the uh, kind of ocean bubbles techniques um, and some of the deep water dragging uh, approaches. Um, it, looking specifically at the marine environment, could you talk us through what is um, you know the active fields of research? Um, I, I think you perhaps might have a particularly interesting opinion on the Australian sea trials of marine cloud brightening and some of the other um, techniques that are used for local geoengineering for the Great Barrier Reef, such as bringing up cooler water from depths. Um, and uh, I think there's also some trials of ocean bubbling. So um, uh, it, setting aside carbon for, for now, um, could you touch on what's going on in this world and what your thoughts on uh, the viability uh of uh these kind of techniques are and try if you can not to get distracted by chinese carbon emissions because we really want to focus on what you know about the marine environment because that's what's um uh that's what's fascinating about your particular field of knowledge yeah um but you want to draw me out on picking winners and losers and uh, obviously not necessarily. i think 
I think I think it's important also to just um, you know uh, I, I, what I was uh, the, the picking winners argument I think was um, particularly interesting when it comes to these different carbon storage techniques when they're seen as you know being potentially competing technologies you've got different marketplaces which are selling different versions of these in some cases like Stripe has invested in Project Vesta and I'm pretty sure there's some way that you can um, uh, a company that's doing uh, carbon storage and kelp for us so people are making active decisions to you know invest their money in carbon storage and that's why I was hoping that you might want to um, give some clarity on your opinions on carbon storage but I, you know I understand that you, you you don't want to be drawn on that for various reasons but um, it's not necessarily saying whether you know bubbles are better than um, marine cloud brightening I just wanted to get your perspective as somebody who is particularly focused on ocean governance and has I'd imagine uh, a quite a a knowledge of and focus on Australia, which is a certainly a world leader in this kind of uh, research and technology, uh, to give you a view about what's important. And, you know, I, I, I don't expect you to pick winners in this regard, but certainly trying to tease out your understanding of the issues and your um, overview of what's important in this field and what's exciting would be of great interest to our listeners, I think. Well, um, sure. Uh, the reality is, is that 50% of our inshore bar uh, reef uh, ecosystems on the Great Barrier Reef are dead. And they're dead because the planet is warming and the planet is warming because we're releasing carbon into the atmosphere. So is that, are you, is that permanently dead or is that, is that temporarily dead as part of a natural cycle of death and regrowth? Um, if we don't stop emitting carbon uh, and we carry on like this, um, in another 100,000 years, it's quite possible that we will have functioning, healthy uh, coral ecosystems. But it's also possible that they may be extinct in the same way that we will be, uh, in the same way that dinosaurs were, um, if we don't stop emitting carbon. But okay. the reality is, is that scientists are now going, oh, holy hell, um, the barrier reef is dying. Uh, we've had three of the of um, uh, human history's worst bleaching events uh, in the last five years. Um, what are we going to do? So um, a couple of examples is, um, I think it's, um, uh, I haven't got it in front of me right now, but I'm fairly sure it's Harvard University has been looking at um, um, G. Um, um, gene uh, technology approaches towards um, genetic modification uh, of corals to make them more uh, heat tolerant. That's mostly lab-based um, at the moment, uh, but this is a recognition that um, coral is in trouble. Uh, we also have uh, Southern Cross University um, looking at this idea of um, using nanoparticles of salt that you you basically suck up ocean water, you put it through a, um, a, uh, a giant hairdryer, if you like. Um, it's and like a snowblower, a ski yeah, mill, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's uh, isn't right. It, isn't it, Mon didn't Monash do something on that as well? Or was uh, I getting confused? Uh, the, 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 the um, experiment that was just done that's caused um, a bit of um, consternation, if you like, or hoo-ha um, in, in the international community, particularly those civil society organisations that, that campaigned so actively on stopping ocean fertilisation, um, was, was undertaken um, 
by Southern Cross University in, in early March. Um, and that's part of um, a broader federal government uh, reef restoration uh, and adaptation program, as it's called, uh, of 150 of $50 million of, of looking at uh, these, these kinds of technologies. Uh, but again, Andrew, we can't get away from the policy optics of these, these uh, experiments as well. And I know that pure science uh, scientists like to see that they, they sit and exist uh, above the policy realm or, or, or separate from the policy realm. But we have a situation in Australia where our government is picking winners and losers, and it's picking winners and losers on the basis of the extent to which they can continue to run business as usual and export coal and, and uh, liquefied uh, natural gas and continue putting uh, carbon into the atmosphere whilst funding researchers to generate technologies that can make a difference with or without those uh, fossil fuel um, economy related issues. And, and that is where the science becomes problematic. It's never the science per se. We, we, we all know that, um, you know, we all know uh, Einstein's view about what happened to his, his technologies. Um, and it, it is problematic. Uh, but having said that, uh, if you really want me to look at what um, uh, research is, um, has the most potential um, I would say that um, marine cloud brightening is certainly uh, one of those technologies that's um, kind of coming on a pace, but um, it has this fine line between, well, is it contravening the London protocol around uh, marine pollution um, and those, those pesky you, you sets of spraying, rules. You are only spraying seawater into the sea, right? So it's hard to see how that could concentrate uh, that could constitute ocean dumping so why would that be a london protocol violation i mean you're not taking a, an external material and putting it into the ocean are you you're you're just you know blowing some sea around in the sea what's wrong with that well i mean um that's a nice way of passing it to make it look harmless i suppose you could say that but if you are taking material a from location uh, B and doing something with it and effectively putting it in location C, uh, you are actually um, having some kind of impact on the broader system. Um, but it certainly can be considered to be dumping, could it? I mean, you're not dumping stuff. You're not taking material from the land and putting it in the ocean, no. But you are taking material from the ocean, processing it, and then putting it back into no, the I, ocean. Look, I get it. It's a significant intervention. But I certainly wouldn't think that, you know, only the most uh, extremely torturous interpretation of the dumping convention could regard placing seawater in the air over the sea, which then falls back into the sea as being dumping in any meaningful sense. But um, Well, it, dumping, it, it, dumping, it, is, dumping is, is your... Um, is your word, Andrew? It's it's not mine. Um, I mean, the issue the issue is is that you are changing the surface re reflectivity of the ocean, uh, and by that you are engaging in you know um, solar radiation management or, or radiative forcing management. You are seeking to have a uh, an impact on the extent to which the ocean. Of course, absorbs but, but why carbon. precisely might that be illegal? I'm not saying it is or is not illegal. I'm saying that people are seeing this, tech, this, this emerging technology and saying, is this pushing an envelope? 
um, and how far is it pushing the envelope? We've already well, I think got it certainly is, yeah, yeah, and I mean. It's, it's no coincidence that at the same time this, this um, experimentation is happening, we have the joint group of experts on the scientific aspects of uh, marine environmental protection with a wonderful uh, acronym of GAZAP. Um, particularly, That's pretty cool. What does, uh, what does GAZAP stand for? GAZAP. We're all up for a bit of silliness on this uh, podcast, so yeah, we'll have a bit of that. Thank okay, you. Okay, this is this is the body that advises the uh, the World Meteorological Organization, um, the International Maritime Organization. Effectively, the scientists that advise all the intergovernmental organizations that look at. Um, um, the London Convention and what we do with um, managing uh, marine pollution. Um, and they are called the Joint Group of Experts on the Scientific Aspects of Marine Environmental Protection, or GAZAMP. Um, and they um, referred to particularly marine cloud brightening as one of the technologies that requires um, extreme caution and the exercise of the precautionary principle. And there was some concern about this particular uh, experiment. Uh, it was the world's, one of the world's first so-called open air uh, trials. Uh, there was E-Peace e though, wasn't there? That was quite similar. And that was uh, on the west coast of America about eight years ago, I think. Yes, that's right. But um, don't quote me, but I think it was onshore uh, projecting offshore, whereas this one was uh, offshore projecting offshore. Okay. Um, so it was actually... Um, First um, marine trial. It so was I'm, a I'm marine really trial. You said about the, um, the, the sort of local kerfuffle. So um, we've had some stuff in the UK, the Spice Project, and Harvard's had its um, trials and tribulations getting its Scopex uh, experiment launched. Uh, and this uh, marine cloud brightening, uh, intervention seemed to sort of come out of left field. I, I, I didn't hear about it before it hit. And then one day it's sitting there in my inbox, some guy with a marine cloud brightening machine running around the Southern Oceans on a ship. Um, and I, I was like, okay, that's very interesting. How did that happen? Um, I wondered how well it went down in, in um, within local communities. Did people, uh, you know, try and um, sink the boat or anything like that? Or was it taken as being quite a noble scientific in endeavor? Because that, that hasn't been the case in, uh, in many of the other places where people have tried to do even the most benign geoengineering experiments? Well, generally, Australians don't uh, run around and sink ships. Um, I mean, we, <laughs> the discussion that's going on in this country at the moment is, is the fact that we're quite compliant, actually, one of the reasons why we have no uh, significant um, deaths from, from the pandemic. And so, I mean, we, we're not generally um, a nation a that... A boisterous um, nation. Uh, well, um, we have... You're on the very... sports field, but you're not, but you're not necessarily <laughs> in, in terms of protest politics, right? Um, oh, well, we have pretty good protest politics, but um, we, on, on both sides, we, we do have an ex, uh, quite a lot of draconian legislation uh, domestically controlling what we can and cannot do. Uh, poor old Extinction Rebellion type folks in Brisbane, for example, can't walk around with bike locks or super glue in their pocket because that, that's illegal. Um, but 
I mean, that's a bit of a side issue. I guess, I guess the real question here, um, as, as I said earlier, Andrew, and, and we might be winding up because I'm in danger of, of repeating myself, but the issue is, is scientists do research uh, with particular technologies uh, when those technologies are expensive uh, because they get the funding to do it. Um, and this particular uh, experiment um, received funding uh, to do it. Uh, where, where, where was that funding from? Because I, I didn't really get any idea of the academic process behind this, even in retrospect, uh, certainly not in advance. I didn't even hear about it at all. But in retrospect, I still don't understand who funded it and why, how much funding they had, what processes they went through. And that is all very interesting to our listeners because they are you know, typically academics who are involved in you know, process is very similar. So I'd really like to, to get into the weeds on that. All because, right. Well, look, um, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to verbal Southern Cross University and I don't want to make any claims and be seen as being unfair. Uh, what's, but I do have to say what's not clear to me is whether the Australian federal government funded the research first or gave them the money afterwards on the basis of the experimentation. But what we do know is that the Australian government, um, um, uh, about 18 months ago, 18 months to two years ago, suddenly announced $600 million worth of funding for fixing up the Barrier Reef, and they tried to give it to... $600 million? I mean, that's like, even in, what's that in real money? What's that in US dollars? Um, oh, about, oh, don't, don't quote me, 400, something like that. It was anyway. It's still it was a, a really significant, still a really significant amount of money. I mean, it's yeah, like it was a, half it was a, a billion US dollars, roughly. It was a bucket load of money and it was uh, effectively dumped onto a, um, a non-governmental organisation that uh, claims it didn't necessarily ask for it. Um, and then there are a lot of questions were asked as to um, who, who, who are the directors of this organization? Why are they getting the money? Um, and so they are for billion, they've got half a billion dollars and all they've managed to do is float around with one boat and a hairdryer. I mean, that well, what, like they've got ba basically what, what happened with that original funding was there was a lot of questions were asked as to the, to the decision making processes that the Australian federal government um, engaged in. Uh, with the, with the uh, dispersal of those funds. Those funds have subsequently been reallocated, as I understand it, and 150 million of that has now gone to the so-called Reef Restoration and Adaptation Programme, or RRAP. Um, so we do have a situation where we have a government that is, I think it's fair to say, it's pretty close um, to sceptic on the sceptic, non-sceptic continuum. Uh, from a policy perspective, it's hostile to uh, renewable energy um, and it's in favour of coal-fired power stations and it's looking for technologies that it can fund that don't challenge Australia's um, uh, mineral-based so, so um, status quo. So they're sceptical of climate change, but not to the point where they're not going to give half a billion dollars to trying to fix the problems that have been caused for the Great Barrier Reef for ex with exactly the cause that they're downplaying or pretending doesn't exist. I mean, that, that's a, that's a bit, a bit two-faced, is it not? Um, 
Well, uh, look, Andrew, another a, a similar analogy is we see Donald Trump wearing a mask when he's going to vote. But when it comes to his stump speeches, um, 30 people come down either with hypothermia because the thing was held in the in the freezing weather or two come down yeah. with COVID. Um, you know, well, there are, um, yeah. Australia, is there is a, Australia is a signatory to the Paris Agreement and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's now desperately trying to wiggle out of going um, to zero uh, emissions. Which is um, kind of weird in a way. I mean, I know we should stick on the geoengineering matters, but I mean, Australia should be absolutely at the forefront of the new energy economy because they've got the ideal location to make um, hydrogen in an absolutely enormous scale because you've got a lot of um, relatively um, uh, unremarkable scrubland that can be covered up with solar panels. You've got some of the highest um, uh, incident solar radiation energy levels in the world um, and, uh, you know, a, 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 a peaceable, uh, integrated uh, economy that's relatively well governed with you know, excellent um, uh, infrastructure to connect into the global energy economy. So it's, it's kind of weird that they don't, you know, just seize this with both hands because, I mean, there certainly have been some interesting energy projects. So I think there's, there's a, a project to build an interconnect to Singapore, isn't there? So you're going to use solar and batteries and then run a, uh, a, a DC interconnect over to Singapore to, to, to send renewable energy over there. So it's kind of kind of ironic, really, that, that the country is sort of so torn when it's got such excellent resource and some really, you know, world-breaking uh, well-beating um, and, and groundbreaking projects um, that, that at the same time it's trying to cling on with its fingernails to the shreds of the 20th century energy economy. It's a notable paradox, isn't it? Well, it, it, it is. Um, I, I do just have to pull you up on the unremarkable scrubland. Um, you know, Australia is uh, one of the world's most significant environmental domains, and there's there's nothing over here that you could you could call unremarkable. We we are an incredibly well, no, remar no, I'm not, I'm remarkable. I'm not trying to, to, to critique the Australia's biodiversity. I mean, there's obviously you know some uh, absolutely uh, spectacular islands of biodiversity, and you've got because you've been a very isolated con continent for many many millions of years. You've got a, you know a, a, a remarkable. Um, collection of uh, weird and wonderful wildlife i'm not trying to detract from that at all but no you know, i i know but but i couldn't i couldn't not i couldn't let that one but, go to the but, keeper no, I, understand, but, 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 I mean but, i guess but, i guess the issue is andrew is that we are we did not ecologically modernize uh around 10 years ago uh malcolm turnbull our um our, our, our prime minister at that, uh, sorry our leader of the opposition at that time was about to make a decision with Kevin Rudd, our uh, Prime Minister of the time. And we were about to get to a point where Australia, both political parties agreed that we needed to undertake, um, you know, carbon pollution reduction, and we needed emissions trading, and we needed a market-based model to, to trade our way out of global warming. Uh, and that point, at that point, um, Malcolm Turnbull, as leader of the opposition, was rolled uh, in, a, in a party spill and replaced by Tony Abbott, 
who is now um, your best friend in the UK doing lots of lovely trade deals. Uh, and um, it became a politically partisan carbon management uh, came, became politically partisan. But the reality is still uh, the planet's warming. Um, fossil fuels are becoming a stranded asset, as uh, you know, the terminology goes. And Australia uh, and Australia's uh, mining and, and mineral industry is getting uh, extremely worried uh, at the fact that um, coal is um, becoming a not particularly interesting uh, energy source. And I, ho I hope they are. <laughs> but uh, fascinating though Australian climate politics are, and, and not to decry their significance, uh, I'd like to just pull you back to some of the, um, the other details um, of this um, Southern Cross University study, because there were some other techniques that they were looking at um, in terms of pulling up cooler water, and I think they used some um, uh, bubble um, generation technologies. Um, uh, uh, do, do either of those approaches show promise or is it really just the marine cloud brightening is now the only show in town? Uh, no, not, not at all. I mean, there are some, there are some potentials with, with ocean upwelling uh, from, from two perspectives. One, one is, yes, you can use it as a, um, in inverted commas, uh, geoengineering technology to, to, you know, cool the surface waters. Yeah, uh, Ken, Ken Caldera looked at that and found that it, um, it doesn't actually work in the longer term. And I, I know that was an initial result from a low resolution model, but my understanding is that that technology largely died a death when that was identified and I think from memory um, the process that was responsible for that was that pulling up cool water um, at large scale onto the ocean surface reduced the evaporation from the surface and therefore reduced the number of clouds or the total cloud cover and therefore increased the amount of heating by reducing the albedo. That's how I think that works. Now, uh, stretching my knowledge, and if I knew that was going to come up, then I might have actually done some research, but I didn't get around to doing it. Um, so I think my understanding at the moment is that this cool water addition is more used for, or more, or, or more stated to be used for um, uh, protecting local ecosystems. I just wondered if you if you got a, a lowdown on whether that does or does not look promising for the Great Barrier Reef, which is obviously a, an asset of great ecological value and and, and, and also, you know, it's a national cultural asset for the Australians. Uh, look, there is certainly some, there is certainly some potential um, in um, moving nutrients around um, in the, in, on, the, on the surface layers. And that's actually part of what's being investigated in this research with kelp, uh, with kelp farming in Tassie. Uh, they're looking at the extent to which we might be able to um, feed um, the ma macroalgae, the, the, the kelp, through some kind of um, uh, upwelling, near-surface upwelling technologies. Uh, but the extent to which we can apply that in, um, in, the, at, in the barrier reef or at large scale to make any kind of climate intervention um, I, I, I can't say, but I do think so, that... So, it's, so, so you're saying it's more about nutrient movement than it is about water cooling? Because my understanding of it is that the water movement approach was really focused on trying to uh, make sure the surface waters um, cooled um, as much as possible in order to prevent coral bleaching. Is that, yeah, is that, we, is that we, not a correct we, understanding? Um, look, I, you are more of the expert here, but 
my understanding is that one thing we can do is if we can cool kelp, kelp can continue to grow. Uh, and if it grows, it could be used for, um, you know, as it's called marine permaculture. We could So grow... biofuels, carbon storage, animal feed, all of those kind of things, right? Yeah, that's right. So that okay. I think that's part of the reason why it's being why it's being looked at. So in a sense, if you like, um, the 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 original theory um, has been somewhat technologically transformed, um, but it okay. has some potential, as I understand it, but not for okay. combating climate change per se. We've had a we've had a run around the Australian coast and the Australian political system. Um, so I'd just like to you know return to a. a the, the core of your um, your research. Um, I uh, sort of came across you originally because I, I had a, one of your surveys land in my inbox. And I think you are gonna tease us uh, with some initial results and breaking news, which has been under strict embargo while this survey has been finishing. Um, but I think you've got um, a couple of little nuggets for us. So could you tell us um, firstly what the survey is all about um, and then give us uh, uh, some kind of uh, peek at what your insights have been from this uh, program of research that you've been doing. Yes, uh, sure. So um, just in a nutshell, to be really boring and sort of social science-y uh, introspective, um, I've developed a, uh, a methodology for evaluating the governance quality of particular institutions, looking at a series of governance attributes. So... Um, to kind of uh, make that more understandable is uh, my theory at him is that the more you let people participate in uh, discussion and decision-making processes, uh, the better the outcomes of your governance, uh, your, your institutional governance, because you encourage people to collaborate collectively uh, and that helps uh, lift the institutional performance of, um, you know, the the element in question. So two heads are better than one, basically. Yeah, talking and doing together collectively produce better outcomes than just one person running off and going and and doing something. And I think, in a sense, megalomaniacs of the world take note. <laughs> and um, you know. Um, sprayers of sulfates into the atmosphere, get your act together and start collectively talking with people and working some kind of solution together. And I think that's uh, really at the nub of um, where we need to go with, with giving geoengineering okay. so, serious so investigation. So, um, so let's get into the nuts and bolts of your survey. So you've got this methodology and you're asking people about the governance uh, and the performance of a, of a range of different institutions, most of which I had either never heard of or I didn't know well enough to be able to meaningfully answer your survey, which is what fascinated me. I basically, I always like to talk more about research I don't properly understand. So do you want to give us a whistle-stop tour of the institutions you're appraising, the audience you were reaching out to, uh, and then give some hints as to what the feedback from the audience has um, uh, suggested to you? Yeah, sure. So... Um... I am, I am quite certain that by the time I've explained my research to you, reviewer two will have spat the dummy. Um, and we always I, spit the dummy, that's <laughs> our job. Because I'm, if you like, as a, a social scientist, um, uh, a pseudoscientist. Um, yeah, I yeah tend, we always give, we'll always give social scientists a hard time, don't worry. I, I, so I, I, I tend, about that. 
Um, you can't really convert um, quantitative qualitative results, if you like, into a, into a quantitative score. Uh, but having said that, you can ask people what they think about stuff and measure it. So um, I use 11, what, what I call 11 indicators of governance quality. So we look at issues like account, perceptions of accountability, transparency, uh, inclusiveness, democracy, uh, provision of resources. Um, and and just give me a rundown settlement. of the... Yeah, I mean, you've given us a flavour of the research, but if you can give us a rundown of the institutions that you're looking sure. for, so I think we, we, like we ask people, we ask people to comment on their views of the governance quality of the blue economy generally. We ask them to talk about the Sustainable Ocean Initiative of the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, the Sustainable Blue Economy Finance Initiative, which is hosted by the United Nations Environment Programme, the Blue Carbon Initiative of Conservation International, the Marine Stewardship Council, uh, Marine Permaculture, and then we gave respondents an opportunity to comment on other global, regional, national, or local activities in which they were uh, involved. That, that's, a that's a pretty specialist list, isn't it? I mean, you're gonna have quite a small number of people that can meaningfully express an opinion on all those bodies, right? Uh, well, yes and no. That, that not including me, for example, right? Um, yes and no. I mean, you would be surprised at the, uh, the number of global initiatives right now that are out there focusing on oceans. But, you know, I, I get it. But what I'm saying is, does it, are, there, are there many people who are sufficiently well informed about what all of these bodies do to be able to give you a meaningful survey response on the quality of the governance of these organisations? Or, or, are they, or are they, is this just a, you know, a, a exercise in collecting random numbers? Uh, no, no, it's not. But I can, I can give you, I can give you the numbers if you're, if you're interested. Um, but what I'd like from you, if you, in terms of the, the results, uh, is, is a, uh, you know, a high level oversight in terms of what people have told you about the quality of governance. And particularly if you can draw out any detail that was available from your survey on um, the governance of carbon dioxide removal and solar geoengineering related to the ocean, because that's, you know, the, the, what, that's what our, our readers are hungry for. Uh, well, look, I mean, the only carbon specific initiative that we looked at, and I put it in there so that we could uh, comment to some extent on perceptions of governance quality around, um, you know, carbon, um, carbon activities uh, was the Blue Carbon Initiative of, of Conservation International. Um, and interestingly, uh, essentially the results are largely the same for um, most of these uh, initiatives uh, around their performance. So um, there's not much difference between the initiatives that we, we investigated. Um, one of the poor, poorer performance is interestingly the Marine Stewardship Council um, and uh, Marine Permaculture. That's the only one I know about. Um, but the, it, the issue is more that respondents were generally satisfied, and I think that's a, a fair comment uh, to say, looking at the data, about the governance of um, sustainable development related ocean activities. 
from, from a wide range, including the Blue Carbon Initiative. But what we see and what we have seen, uh, and I and my colleagues have seen um, across the research is there are some consistent governance failings around how the world uh, does sustainable development. And there are always two indicators in the research that we do that, that fail or perform poorly. Um, and those two are what we call resources, which is the provision of resources for people to participate within uh, specific initiatives. It's a bit axiomatic in a sense. There's never enough money uh, for people to uh, engage in activities. But if you don't resource people to engage uh, effectively within particular mechanisms or policy initiatives, if you don't provide them with uh, accommodation or you don't provide them, for example, if, they're, if English isn't their first language, with a translator, or you, can, uh, you always see a situation in climate talks where you get 100 American delegates at a particular initiative, but you get one person for the whole of the small island states. So resources. Yeah, that is certainly uh, a phenomenon which it requires ongoing um, uh, efforts to correct where rich nations are overrepresented and certainly rich nations with particular cultures of, um, uh, of civic engagement uh, are overrepresented. I mean, there are, um, there are rich Arab countries, for example, that, that don't perhaps play as strong a role in global um, environmental governance as they might um, be expected to based on their wealth. Uh, whereas countries with a, a, a stronger tradition of uh, civic organisation, um, you know, typically the English-speaking ones and, and, and other countries around the world with similar cultures to that, um, are, are greatly overrepresented. So yeah, you're not you're not talking about something which is not a uh, a real or acknowledged phenomenon there, and uh, and certainly one where you know so much of the biodiversity and um, carbon is in poorer communities in. Um, Southeast Asia and the island states, you know, it's, it's a real problem and, and one that, you know, I hope can be corrected. And we, there are initiatives within the, the geoengineering community, the solar geoengineering community, to uh, to draw that participation um, uh, out of the, the global community by capacity building. And, and that specifically the decimals fund um, in uh, SRMGI, a, 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 um, a real notable initiative. And I guess there are um, similar ones in carbon dioxide removal that don't trip so readily off my tongue, but I, I hope they are, you know, doing as well and starting to make a difference in, in that kind of participation. Um, so thanks for praising your research. Is there anything that you think on that paper that you haven't had the opportunity to, to touch on or... Um, uh, uh, look, it, it's it, it's not a paper yet. It it will. I've got to um, you know put the put the results. Three or through. four years later, it might fall out of the back end of the publication process. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But there is one last there is one last comment I would want to make on 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 the results that we've got. And I, I would just say that we we've had um, I think we've had thirty one participants so far from the. Um, developed countries and 54 from from the developing countries oh, that's um, not bad you've got a fair few people from the developing world though. yeah we can do statistics. we can do small end statistical analysis and we can identify significance so um but it, it's a small cohort but just one one thing i do want to say is the second weakest indicator um was 
dispute settlement. So we all know that the UN gets con uh, constantly bogged down in disagreements because there is, uh, or there are... It's where very... people go to squabble when they haven't got the money to have a war, right? That's right, and, we, and processes get bogged down. Um, and we see these results again being replicated within the so-called blue economy. There's not enough capacity building and there's not enough um, uh, attention being paid to resolving conflicts within the space. Um, and yeah, and I think that's, it's interesting you can look at the global geopolitics of this. I mean, the, there's obviously a huge amount of controversy about uh, China's expansion and militarization of the South China Sea. And I think that... Um, well, that's obviously not directly related to geoengineering and certainly not to carbon removal. It's interesting to, to see the marine government space holistically and to see that as an example of where you could say that there's certainly an operational failure of governance. I mean, the, there has been uh, legal manoeuvring uh, about China's role in the, in the South China Sea, but it hasn't really resolved the dispute. So it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, the dispute resolution um, and the governance strength is similarly challenged when it comes to um, marine ecosystems and, and marine carbon specifically. Yeah, but what's interesting in, in these results specifically is they, they don't distinguish between public and private activities. So private governance initiatives being driven by NGOs, um, like um, the, Blue, the Blue Carbon Initiative of Conservation International or the Marine Stewardship Council, um, they are just as prone to the governance challenges as the intergovernmental uh, bodies. And the, the take home message for me um, is that if the world actually wants to do sustainable development and it wants to combat some of these major uh, global challenges, unless we bring all the stakeholders the social interests, the economic interests, the environmental interests, the government interests, um, you know, uh, to the table, and we provide a, a, a level governance playing field where everybody gets to play their part on the basis of their understanding and their knowledge, uh, you know, the academy included, we will not collaborate effectively and we will not solve um, the environmental challenges that the world is facing. And we should be learning from uh, initiatives that are out there already uh, and looking at geoengineering and going, we will just replicate the same problems and perpetuate the same conflicts if we don't collaborate effectively. And that's the one thing I think that we can see from what's happening with COVID and where we can make a link is you can look at those economies and those countries where uh, decisions have been made to listen to the science and to work together and you can see a demonstrable reduction in the death rates. And yeah, can... it's certainly um, when, uh, when the uh, pandemic tide goes out, you can certainly see the autocrats swimming naked, can't you? Uh, yes, the emperor wears no clothes. Yeah, and uh, it's all of the populists around the world um, have uh, uh, been exposed for the charlatans that they are to make a rare foray into politics um, on this show. We try and stay out of party politics, but I think the data is pretty clear on that, that the um, blowhards have been um, blown hard by the pan pandemic. Um, I don't want to uh, 
uh, go on all night, um, but I am aware that you've got a couple of other bits of research that you might want to touch on. Um, I'm going to keep things slim and trim, but are there any other uh, things that you've done in your research career, um, particularly with focus on geoengineering and, 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 and within that, certainly a, a more close focus on the marine environment and, and geoengineering and the governance thereof um, that you might want to touch on? I know there's another paper that you did that you showed me and had some relatively interesting um, uh, structure to it. So I wonder if you could just pricey that very, very briefly um, for our listeners. All right. Well, look, I'm going to be a bit naughty and I am going to I am going to swim out of the ocean and come on land. And I am going to talk about uh, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage uh, because uh, I think... hate of ours on this on this podcast. Uh, Claire and I, the other presenter. Well, uh, we um... both absolutely loathe Bex. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm very happy to talk to Kate, but I do. You know, um, just as someone who cares very passionately about um, Australia's forests and the world's forests, and particularly our beloved koala uh, over here, I'm extremely, extremely... The ones that haven't been burned. Yeah, um, you know, and and about a third of them have, uh, and their habitat is being actively chopped down um, um, in the wake of the fires of so-called salvage. Uh, is being pulled out of the ground, stuck in trucks and driven 200 kilometres and burnt in a furnace, which is called green power, to generate electricity. Uh, And we are seeing in Australia the rise of bioenergy. And we obviously have um, active carbon capture and storage projects in our Gorgon gas field and other places like that. But we are beginning to see... Are they operating or are they just slated? Uh, Gorgon, Gorgon's functioning now, so that's... Um, okay, and when did that come online? It came online, um, I think, in late 2019, but we have to remember that in the intervening period, it boosted Australia's carbon emissions profile. It's been argued by something like 50%. So it would have to be operating for a very long time to offset the damage it's already done from a carbon well, perspective. How, how, does that, how does it work? I mean, you... Uh, Help me out. So are you saying that the gas field were previously releasing a lot of carbon into the atmosphere as they recovered and sweetened the gas and then you and they're now capturing some or all of it and but it's not enough to, you know, undo the damage that the gap that gas field has previously done. Is that is that what you're saying? That is what I am saying. And there okay. were uh, one or two, whether it was deliberate um release events because they couldn't capture it effectively, or whether it was the technology wasn't ready or they were, you know, um didn't get their act together is not clear. Um, but yeah. um, the, the validity of Gorgon, to my mind, and, and um, the whole CCS uh, experiment here in Australia is still absolutely um, questionable. But my concern is that we are learning all the bad lessons from Europe, particularly when it comes to BECS. Um, and I'm watching my forests being driven 200 kilometres up the road to be burnt and sold as green power. And to me, uh, that somehow doesn't seem logical. Well, we can, we, we, can, we can improve on that uh, uh, in Europe because our, uh, we, we take forests, uh, you know, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to burn them. So, you know, that, that beats you by some margin. Um, Oh, oh, well, luxury, luxury. We're sending our forests all the way from Australia to Europe. So, um, Excellent. So, enough Monty Python. Enough Monty Python. Do you think that there's, uh, just to play devil's advocate here, 
I mean, do you think that there is any future for sustainable forest biomass um, uh, in the energy system? Does Bex or um, Bikers or Bickers or Beakers or whatever the hell it is, the one without any energy coming out of it, do you think that there is a role for this um, uh, you know, burning forests and then CCSing the results? Is that is that ever going to be part of a sustainable um, carbon economy or is that just a generally terrible idea? All right. Well, I am going to come down and I am going to pick a loser um, and I'm going to say okay. I'm going to say no. Um, it's Bex. Oh, great. So yeah. as, long as, as long as Bex is a loser, we're certainly going to be happy on that. But, pod, but uh, I do I do want to I do want to just say, you know, there are. There are some value, I think, to uh, some kind of soil carbon sequestration, and there is value to some kind of um, biochar um, initiative. But the issue is, at the moment, those three technologies are effectively in competition with with, with one another. I mean, soil well, carbon. It's more than that, isn't it? Because I mean, there's accounting the um, and permanence issues with soil carbon storage. I mean, how do you know how much carbon has been stored in the soil? Uh, you know, there's a huge potential for fraud. If you've got a pipeline that goes to a capped-off gas well, and you're putting down a certain number of cubic meters per second into that gas well, it's a fairly known quantity. You're not, you know, you're not going to have any great surprises but when it when it comes to um, biomass um, carbon storage in the environment it's a lot harder to measure there's a lot more gray areas right so um, you can you can have a lot more confusion and the inherent fragility of storage in uh, an ecosystem which um, was degraded or has been you know improved from its natural level to store more carbon um, that is an inherently um, reversible process right and and so those techniques have, have an issue of permanence and of management and of recording which are inherent and therefore it makes it quite a governance challenge because if you don't know what you've stored and for how long it's very difficult to credit anybody and therefore it's very difficult to have financial flows that are reliable so but anyway i think we are veering into the uh, territory of putting the world to rights and i've kept you way up past your well, you kept me way up past my bedtime. Your bedtime. And I've kept you way up, way up. You, you kept me way. I kept you way off past your breakfast time because you're in a completely different time zone to me. So, um, unless there's anything pressing uh, that you want to say, I'll finish in the customary fashion by rejecting your not yet written paper. Um, I don't know whether that's even legitimate, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so, um, uh, is there anything you'd like to say just before you wrap up? Any final words to the jury? Uh, yes, I'd just like to congratulate Boris Johnson for actually doing something on becoming uh, zero net emissions by 2050 versus our rather daft government position over here. Believe it or not. Uh, well, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure we're going to endorse any praise of Boris Johnson on this podcast. I've got to put up with the man as my prime minister and you haven't. So I that I was said somewhat tongue in cheek. So. <laughs> Well, yes, I'm glad it was. I'm, I'm not a fan, I have to say. But uh, anyway, thanks for coming on the show. And um, we'll look forward to seeing and perhaps rejecting again um, your forthcoming paper. Um, would you just like to finish off by giving a journal reference to the other paper that you discussed? Obviously, people can't go and look at your unpublished work, but they can um, refer to your um, uh, the one that you had about geoengineering governance. So if you've got a quick shout out on paper titles. Uh, yes, journal. that is the, that is the uh, world famous uh, International Journal of Social Quality, 
Um, I think it's, it's on everyone's bookshelf. Yeah, I think it's volume nine, uh, issue two. Um, and the uh, forthcoming uh, chapter on um, geoengineering, uh, addressing climate change risks, a matter of utmost urgency, is now uh, being processed by Springer uh, and will come out sometime next year in the Springer Handbook of Climate Change Management. Is there, a da- is there a download link that you'll be able to share for readers or not? Um, there is for the journal article, uh, but there's no DOI for the, um, for okay. the spring. Well, do send, those, do send those to us in, in email and we'll put them up on the uh, title panel of your um, podcast. Uh, so I'll just tail this off by thanking you very much for coming on the show and uh, looking forward to hearing more from you in the future. No worries. Thank, Thank you very you. much.